heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name. Sing that again. You give and take away. And it's all because the 
I think not only are we now alive, but we're awake, which is a good thing. Good morning, everybody. Hey, I want to let you know about a couple of things before we dive in this morning. First off, it being September, not only are our kids back at school, to which all the parents say, thank you, Jesus, uh, but we are starting to get back together in life groups. And if you are not a currently a part of a life group, which is really a smaller group of, of committed Christ followers who are committed to gathering together to spur one another on and to do life, hence the name Life Group. Uh, if you're not a part of one of those groups, then you are missing the absolute best thing that Lighthouse has to offer you. And I can say that with confidence, being the guy that typically stands up here on a Sunday morning speaking. If you're not a part of a Life Group, you're missing the best part of what we have to offer. It's certainly not my messages. Because that's where you get to process together and do life on life. And in a lot of ways, our Life Groups are like... Uh, rock tumblers, where we bring our messy, uh, jagged edges in and we kind of bump up against one another. And in the process, we are polished into a better reflection of the image of God. So if you're not part of one, how do you get into one? If you're here this morning, in your seat back in front of you, there is a, a connection card. Let us know you want to get in one, and Jeff and I will make, we will work to get you plugged into one. We have groups on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. I don't know that we have any on Thursday or Friday at this point, but let us know what night works for you, and we will get you plugged in. Secondly, I love getting to worship with this team, and, and I know that they love getting to lead us into a time of celebrating God. And we don't get a ton of time on Sunday mornings because we're, you know, we're trying to do several things during that time. That said, if you would like to continue worshiping together on this Friday night, the 24th, we are going to be gathering in this room from 7 to about 8.30 p.m. to sing, worship, and pray together as a church family. And given the season that we're in right now, I think all of us could use an extra dose of just getting to gather together and worship our God together. So, again, this Friday we have a worship night here in the family room. We are, I'm sorry, here in the sanctuary. We will also be live streaming it for those of you who aren't able to be with us in person. All right? With that, turn with me to John chapter 16. We're continuing this journey through the life of Jesus, and over the last month or so, we have been in the last 24 hours of Jesus' life prior to him being arrested and crucified. Specifically, he's having a conversation with his disciples as he's trying to prepare them for what is to come, because Jesus knows 
that his arrest and his, his crucifixion is imminent. His disciples don't. And I liken what he's doing to probably what uh, Michelle Tizon had to do this last month. Because Michelle Tizon is one of our moms who has just sent her children off to school. So I've got a couple of young guys. We sent them to grade school. They come back every day. Michelle got to send her youngest son, Tim, to school in Arizona. So he's going out, and she did that at the beginning of August. And then about three or four weeks later, she sent her her daughter, Jessica, to Korea, where she is going to spend the next couple of years teaching English. Put yourself in her shoes for a moment. Here are two children that you have invested your life in, that you've loved and walked with and protected, and now you're sending them out into the world. And you've tried to prepare them for it, but you know that there are going to be things that they haven't been prepared for, that they haven't thought of, that are going to kind of sideswipe them. And so I'm sure that there were some really intentional conversations that she had with them in preparation for that time. And then there was a whole heck of a lot of prayer that went into that. In the same way, Jesus has been walking with his disciples for the last three years. He's been modeling for them. He's been preparing them. He's known this time is coming where he is going to go be with the Father to prepare a place, but that he is going to leave them to continue doing the ministry that he's been doing up to this point. And yet, in the midst of that, he knows that they're really not ready, that they couldn't possibly, in the same way that I I thought I knew what I was getting into when I said, "I, I do, and I got married, I thought I understood what marriage entails, I had no idea, neither did Kathy, right? When we said yes to being parents, we thought we knew what we were getting into, we had no idea, and you learn along the way. But Jesus is trying to prepare his disciples for what is to come, and that's how He is spending these last couple of hours that he has with them. It begins in the upper room as he washes their feet and reframes their idea of what true power is by taking the posture of a servant and saying, the higher you climb, this ladder is inverted. So the higher you climb, you actually have more people to serve. Leadership is not about getting your way. Leadership is about serving others. And the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the servant of all. And then he he begins to prepare them for the fact that he's going to go to the Father and that they are going to continue doing what he's going to do, but you can't do this by yourself, so I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, this advocate, to be with you and empower you and encourage you and remind you who you are and whose you are and what you're about. And he reminds them that they couldn't possibly do what he's calling them to do apart from him, apart from their abiding connection to him through the enablement of the Holy Spirit. And then Then he acknowledges that the journey that they are about to endure is not going to be an easy one, that they are going to encounter persecution, that there are going to be people who will literally hate them in the same way that he has endured persecution. And Jesus was one that constantly was butting up against and experiencing persecution, not just from the world at large, but from the the religious power brokers within Judaism, within their own people. He he endured probably the worst persecution, which is interesting when you would think that he being the Jewish Messiah, that they would have embraced him and and accepted him and celebrated him and gotten behind him, but really, Jesus endured the worst pushback and persecution from those religious power brokers. And the reason why, I believe, is because they had lost sight of the heart of God. They had turned 
their relationship that God had invited them into, into a religion, a cold, dead religion. They'd turned the values that he modeled for them and laid out for them. This is what it looks like to live as part of the family of God. This is what it looks like to live as an ambassador of the kingdom of God. And he laid out his values, and they turned those values into into a set of legalistic rules that they then bound up in a book and could beat people over the head with and beat people into submission and, and, and mistreat people over. And so... In so doing, they lost sight of the heart of God, misunderstood who he was, and therefore began to misrepresent who he was to the detriment of the world and to the detriment of those that they were leading. And so when Jesus shows up and he begins to accurately reflect the heart of God, as he begins to accurately live out the values of God, they didn't look at that as, oh, we totally misunderstood, thank you, They looked at that as a challenge to their authority, and they began to to get defensive and then began to get combative in shutting him up so that they could maintain the status quo. And they went to the point of seeking to get Jesus killed in order to maintain the status quo. Jesus knows that the cross is coming in large part because he has shined light on the ways in which they've misunderstood God, and they hated him for it. And so they want to shut him up. And he knows that they won't stop hating those who follow Jesus, particularly if they begin to shine light in the darkness as well. And so he knows persecution is going to come, not just from the outsiders, but more so even from those on the inside. So as we pick up John chapter 16, he's going to speak directly to that. He says this in John 16, verse 1, all of this I've told you so that you will not fall away, that you won't lose heart and, and, and feel discouraged. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think that they're offering a service to God. That's how much they've misunderstood his heart. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. And I've told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. So Jesus looks at his disciples and says, guys, it's going to get hard. It's not going to get easier. It's going to get harder. You're going to endure persecution. And last week, we acknowledged the fact that if we are following Jesus, if we are submitting our lives to him, if we are allowing the Holy Spirit to abide within us and begin to shape us in his image so that we begin to radiate light into the darkness, we will endure persecution. People will judge us, people will mock us, people will write us off, people will try to silence us, people will try, I mean, it it may get to the point in America like it is elsewhere in the world where people will lose jobs, will lose family, will lose freedom, and ultimately may even lose our lives over it. We talked last week about how in, Amer- in, in the world, on average, every single day, eight followers of Jesus Christ lose their life because they are unwilling to recant their, their trust in Jesus Christ. How every week, thousands of Christ followers are imprisoned for their faith. How every month, over a thousand churches and, and Christian Uh, homes and buildings are attacked 
Persecution is alive and well in the 21st century. In fact, more Christ followers are persecuted today than in the history of the church. Persecution is not something that we are promised that he will protect us from. Persecution is an inevitability. Because as you and I, as we talked about last week, you and I were called to radiate light into the darkness. But as I found out the hard way this morning, when I had to get ready for church and my wife was still in bed, so I turned on the light in my room, people who are used to the darkness don't like the light. I love you. But see, it, it, let's just say the only reason I didn't get hit with a shoe is because there was not a shoe in the bed with her. Those who are used to the darkness don't appreciate the light. And so it is no wonder that they will lash out when we begin to expose the broken ways in which the world has been trying to operate, expose the broken values by which the world is operating by. Don't be surprised when they persecute us. And again, I will reiterate something I said last week that is incredibly important. Being persecuted for our faith is not the same as being persecuted for being a jerk. When you do and are obnoxious in the same way that the world is obnoxious and saying, well, I have the freedom to, to condemn because they condemn, and I have the freedom to, to, to lash out because they lash out, and they said it first, so I'm, gonna just, I'm just going to throw it back in their face. That's not the heart of Christ, okay? The heart of Christ is turning the other cheek and loving those who are unlovable and being patient and kind. I think Jesus is calling someone. You might want to answer. Okay, sorry. Like bright, bright, shiny objects or loud noises and I get easily distracted. I'm like, I'm like this much coffee in today, so just be aware that we might have a couple of detours. I see you up there, Brad. So, don't be surprised when persecution happens. It is an inevitability, not something that we should be surprised by. He continues, though. Verse, second half of verse 4. Well, I've told you these things so that when the time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. I didn't tell you this from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? Rather, you're filled with grief because I've said these things. But very truly, or amen, amen, I tell you, it is for your own good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And the advocate he's talking about here in chapter 16 is the same advocate he was talking about in chapter 14. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. And the word advocate there is that same word we looked at two weeks ago, uh, Parakletos, or the paraclete, the one who comes alongside. And we talked about how the Holy Spirit's role in our lives is to help us actually abide with Christ. We, he is the vine, we are the branch, we are called to bear fruit, spiritual fruit, fruit that nourishes the world, or, or we changed the metaphor slightly and said we are called to bear light, but the only way that the light bulb is able to bear light is to be kind of plugged into the light socket and that the Holy Spirit acts as the electricity that flows from Christ and from the Father into us and enables us to produce light in the darkness. So it's only by the enablement of the Holy Spirit that we can do anything of what Christ is calling us to do. The only way that we will be able to have any 
tangible impact on this world is through the enablement of the Holy Spirit. And as he talked about in chapter 14, the Holy Spirit's job is to remind us of who we are, remind us of whose we are, that we no longer belong to the world, that we're a citizen of the kingdom of God, and to remind us of what we are called to do, namely, to bear fruit or to radiate light in keeping with his character. But now in chapter 16, he goes a little bit deeper. Because not only will the Holy Spirit remind us who we are and whose we are and what we are called to be, but the Holy Spirit will also begin through us to expose the brokenness of this world and to convict the world of their own empty ways of doing life. And so he goes into this in verse 8. When he comes, when this Spirit comes... He will, provide the, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin because people don't believe in me. About righteousness because I'm going to the Father where you can no longer see me. And about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I've, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will only speak what he hears and will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. And that is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he has made known to you. So not only is the Spirit given to us to empower us so that we will remember who we are, and be able to do what we are called to do, radiate light. But now we're told that the Holy Spirit will actually expose the broken ways of doing life that are, are evident in the world. When I think about things being exposed, I think that this last couple of years that we've walked through has been perhaps the most exposing season of my life. I mean, we went into, I, I looked forward to 2020 and it's kind of crazy that we're almost all the way through 2021 right now. It feels like this is just the, the third half of 2020 that we're in. But I looked forward to 2020 back in 2019 as the year of perfect vision, right? I mean, it's the year called 2020. So I fully anticipated great things from 2020. But as any of you guys who may have you know, gotten glasses at some point so that you can finally start seeing clearly. Or maybe uh, for those of you who bought one of those high-definition televisions, have found with greater clarity, actually you begin to see more of the imperfections. Isn't that true? Like I know that like when I look at somebody's high-definition television, all of a sudden you start seeing individual pores on these supposedly gorgeous actors' faces. And you're like, wait a minute, they have pores too? Right? Or you begin to see the little individual hairs and things like that. Like, they're human beings as well. When you have the ability to see clearly, you start seeing the cracks. You start seeing the spackle that's been put over it to make it look nice and rosy. But in reality, our reality is pretty messy. Because we are pretty messy. And our culture is pretty messy. And over those last couple of years... It, it, for everything else we've endured, one of the things that has happened, and I think this is actually a blessing, not a curse, is that it, is, it has exposed the empty promises of this world. It has exposed the inability of the pseudo-saviors that set themselves up and say, if you will just get this, we'll protect you. If you will just vote with us, we'll make everything great. If we can just 
Live this way and you live like us. You'll be fine. And the reality is this, over the last couple of years, the, the emptiness of political promises on both sides have been exposed. The emptiness of our financial ability to protect us, the emptiness of even medicines promised to protect us in every which way, it is all being exposed. The very things that we have tried to hang our security on have been shaken and many of them have fallen flat on the ground. And as much as that feels awful, it's also a blessing in the sense that when those pseudo-saviors are shaken and we realize that they can't possibly hold up our lives, then we start looking to that which cannot be shaken. And then and only then will we start... For many people, then and only then will they actually turn to Jesus and say, okay, I've tried everything else and I found it to be empty and I found that it cannot withstand the pressures of life. And so, Jesus, maybe I need you. So I would suggest that that exposing process that the Holy Spirit is doing, it has been happening in greater turns over the last couple of years. And while it's uncomfortable and while it's incredibly discouraging, as we begin to see hypocrisy, even within the church leadership, as we begin to see the ways in which people that we've placed on pedestals are fallible human beings, and as we've seen them fall in front of us and just been like, man, I thought better. As we begin to see the way that power has actually corrupted people and the damage that it's done in other people's lives, I would say that that's actually a blessing because you can't, you can't seek healing for that which you don't see in the same way that many of you here probably have cavities and you don't know it. And there's a reason why the, doctor, the first thing the dentist does when you go in to the dentist's office is have you sit down and they do full x-rays. It doesn't heal anything, it just exposes what needs to be healed so that you will be willing to allow an individual with a drill to get near your teeth. This last couple of years has been exposing like that. And as uncomfortable as it is, it's a blessing. And that's the Holy Spirit working in our society and also working through us as our, li as our lives begin to bear fruit or, or begin to bear light in the darkness. Jesus went on to say, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. At this, some of his disciples said to one another, what does he mean by that? That in a little while you'll see me no more and then after a little while you'll see me. And, and because I'm going to the Father, like, what is he talking about? They kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? Like, how long is this going to be, Jesus? I think that's pretty much like what my kids ask me every time. Is, hey, can, when, when can you do this? In a little while. Well, how long is that? Can I, set, can I tell Alexa to tell me when? And for those of you who are watching at home, I'm sorry that I just had Alexa. You know. At least I didn't say Siri, right? We don't understand what he's saying. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him this, and so he said to them, are you asking one another what I meant when I said in a little while you'll see me no more? Very truly I tell you, amen, amen, I tell you that you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into this world. So it is with you. 
Now, your time of, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one, no one will take away your joy. I love this metaphor that Jesus uses. I don't think as a man he could have gotten away with it today because, you know, he, he never got to go through um, labor, so, you know, not yours to talk about. But I think the metaphor of what they are about to walk through between his arrest, his crucifixion, and Easter Sunday being likened to a long labor is very apropos. I, I will confess, I've never been through labor. I haven't experienced that pain, but my wife has walked through it twice. And so I have it on good authority that it's a really uncomfortable thing, right? I mean, her, her first labor was 21 hours long. By the end of it, I was exhausted. <laughs> and yes, I have a very comfortable couch at home. But in all seriousness, labor is one of those things that is simultaneously awful and glorious. It's awful because it is the single most painful, at least according to her, one of the most painful things she's ever endured. I like to try to say I can identify because I like, you know, I, I blew out my ankle once and that was really, really painful. But she says that doesn't count. Getting paper cuts doesn't count. So it's, it's, it's awful in the sense that it is incredibly painful. And it's not like it's 21 hours that you just kind of, that all bleeds together. It is 21 hours of little itty-bitty moments of pain where you, you have a moment where you're preparing and then the next set of contractions comes and they rack her body. And it is so much, she just has to like breathe as she gets this tunnel vision of just getting through the contractions. And then the contractions subside. And she, she tries to catch her breath as she's preparing for the next set of contractions to come, and they get closer and closer and closer and closer as the moment of birth arrives. So that's awful. But it's also glorious in that that pain that she was enduring had a purpose. And every single one of those contractions brought her a step closer to the birth of our first son and then our second son. Each of those contractions helped lead towards the culmination, the whole purpose of that pain, which is the birth of a child. And when that child comes, and I, I, this is something I don't understand, when that child comes, all of the pain is, is at least eclipsed. It's not forgotten, I'm sure, but it's eclipsed by the joy, the overwhelming joy of getting to hold this life in your arms that you have been looking forward to for us more than nine and a half months. We've been looking forward to it for several years as we had tried to, to get pregnant. And so we were, there was this joy that kind of overshadowed the pain that she had just walked through. The birth of this life that is going to irrevocably change our lives and redefine what it looks like to be a family. And Jesus points to that and he says, guys, what you are about to endure is like a birth. Guys, I got to tell you, it's going to be painful, overwhelmingly painful. You are going to grieve while the world celebrates, but your grief will turn to joy because when you see me again, you'll recognize that the pain had a point. And what you've had to walk through was just the labor pains that were leading up to something even greater. 
And, I, and I, th- I step back for a moment, and I look at how things transpired for the disciples, and that was exactly the case. I mean, when Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, they were terrified. They were so much so that they scattered. Every single one of his disciples ran for their life. And they ultimately went and hid in an upper room. And then when Jesus was tried, very few of them were even around. And when Jesus was beaten and then paraded through the streets of Jerusalem on the way to Golgotha, Skull Hill, where he would hang on a cross and bleed out for us, the majority of the disciples were nowhere to be found. They were hiding for fear that what had befallen Jesus would happen to them as well. Their hope was being crucified right uh, right alongside Jesus. But a few short days later, when they saw Jesus alive, when they realized that he had overcome sin and death, they realized several things. Number one, they realized that they had been focused on the wrong enemy. They'd been looking at Jesus coming to overthrow Rome or to kick Herod out of Jerusalem and reestablish Israel on the world stage. They didn't realize that who he was really coming to overthrow was sin and death, that he was coming to break the chains of accusation and shame and guilt that the Satan, the great accuser, had shackled humanity with. But suddenly they realized that they had been looking way too small and that the kingdom of God was far larger than just the nation of Israel. And in, in, in the place of their grief came joy, and that joy was something that couldn't be taken away from them. Just as an example... In Acts chapter 4, we get a picture of Peter and James, or I'm sorry, Peter and John, John being the guy who wrote this gospel that we're reading. Peter and John, two of Jesus' disciples who hid, are now out in the streets of Jerusalem sharing the gospel. They go to the temple courts, they begin to share that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. They get arrested by the very people who had condemned Jesus to die. They're paraded before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, the people who hold all of the power in the religious circles of Jerusalem. And they are told in no uncertain terms, you will stop speaking in the name of this Jesus or else. And listen, listen to Peter and John's response to them. Peter and John replied, judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we can't help speaking about what we have seen and heard. In other words, you can tell us all day long to stop, but we're going to just keep talking about what we've seen and heard. We're not afraid of you. Our fear left the building the moment Jesus walked into that upper room and we realized that he gets the last word. God bless you. That's the hope that they had. And guys, I think that this is an incredibly important distinction for us to make because like them, between his arrest and crucifixion and Easter Sunday, we find ourselves in an in-between period. Ours is a lot longer than theirs. Theirs was a few days. Ours has lasted at this point about 2,000 years. And it is the period between Jesus' resurrection from the grave and his inauguration of the kingdom of God And when I talk about the kingdom of God, I'm talking about the place where the Father's divine will is carried out. 
A kingdom is anywhere where the sovereign's will is done. And so you can get a good, like for instance, and I've used this analogy before. If a king says, I want every single home in my nation to be painted blue, then you have a really good idea of where the boundaries of that king's kingdom are based upon where the blue buildings stop and the other colored buildings begin. Does that make sense? So where's the kingdom of God? Wherever God's sovereign will is carried out. And Jesus inaugurated the kingdom of God when he came, took on flesh. Throughout his earthly ministry, he modeled the will of God. He said, I only do what I see the Father doing. And ultimately, he walked to the cross because your will, not mine, be done. And this is the way that the Father wanted to redeem humanity. Fine, then we'll do it that way. And when he died on the cross, he was doing so in submission to the Father's will. And when he rose from the dead, it was because the Father said, I want you to come back to life as a testimony to the world that what you claim to be and what you claim to do is truth. And so the, the, the kingdom of God was inaugurated in, the, in, in Jesus Christ. And yet, it is not fully culminated. Because we still live in, in a season of history where we endure pain, where persecution is rampant, where our bodies break down, where relationships break down, where society breaks down, where people choose to curse rather than bless, where people choose to, to lead with hatred as opposed to love, where we do not turn the other cheek, but we strike back eye for eye, tooth for tooth. We live in a, in a season of life where the, it's evident that while we have these values of the kingdom of God, of what it looks like to live as followers of Jesus, it's not fully here yet because when we read in Revelation chapter 20 that in the final culmination of the kingdom of God, there will be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more death. Well, we can look around at our lives and say, yep, not there yet. And we're not there yet. And so we live in an in-between time the kingdom has come, but it is not fully inaugurated. And in the midst of this season, we are enduring painful trials. We are in the midst of a labor of our own. And in the same way that my wife and any of you ladies who have experienced a, a pregnancy have endured, it's like we have these momentary contractions where the world comes slamming right into us. Maybe it's the loss of a loved one. Maybe it's the breakdown of a marriage. Maybe it's, you know, conflict between father and, and, and son or mother and daughter or whatever. Maybe it's our bodies that are literally disintegrating around us or the death of a loved one. Maybe it's a terrorist act that takes the lives of men and women who are simply trying to help. Maybe it's an earthquake or tsunami, or, or fires. We live in a broken, sin-warped world. And these momentary, painful tribulations that we endure are like contractions. And guys, I'm noticing, maybe, maybe some of you might too, that these, these contractions are getting closer and closer and closer together. It feels like it's almost every day they're just piling up on top of one another. And it's overwhelming, and it's discouraging. 
And it could be easy to just go, dude, this place is going to hell in a handbasket and I want out. Can, can Elon figure out a way for us to get to Mars? Because we need to get the chente out of here. We are in the midst of our own spiritual labor. But just like as a pregnancy, those contractions, that pain is not meaningless. It is a pain with purpose. These contractions are pain with purpose. Each one brings us closer and closer to the, to the birth, the fulfillment of the kingdom of God where, the, where, where people that we love like Tony Mangrello no longer need to carry their oxygen around to be able to get a full breath. Where you don't longer need to use a walker in order to get around. We're friends, like I had a friend this week who gave premature birth to a son 23 weeks and two hours later had to say goodbye to that baby. Where this morning, at 4.20 in the morning, uh, our, our Kathy Nelson lost her father on the heels of having lost her mother earlier in the year. Or my friend Monica, like I mentioned last week, who lost her mother suddenly on the heels of having just lost her father. Guys, I don't need to tell you that we live in the midst of, of, of a painful season, that trouble is rampant. And Jesus knew it was going to come. In fact, let's go ahead and skip to the end of this chapter, to verse 33, because he has one last promise for, for his disciples as well as for us. And I think it's incredibly important for us to hold on to this promise in this troubling season that we find ourselves in. Jesus said, I have told you these things so that you, in me you may have peace or shalom. Guys, I know that things are difficult, but I'm telling you these things. I'm telling you it's going to come. It's going to be hard, but that your grief will turn to joy because you can find your peace in me. In this world, you will have trouble. Not an if and or but. There are some of us who have, who have decided, I'm going to check out Jesus with the expectation that if I follow Jesus, he'll protect me from trouble. He will shield me from discomfort. He will protect me from persecution. I won't have to endure pain. If I'm faithful to him, then he better gall darn be faithful to me. But Jesus is looking at his closest disciples and saying, guys, let me reframe your perception of the world and your perception of what it means to follow me. Following me will not protect you from pain, will not shield you from persecution will not guard you from grief. It's an inevitability of doing life in this sin-warped world. And I don't have to tell you this. You can look at your own lives and, and, and things that you're discouraged about, things that keep you up at night, things that you wake up and your mind is chewing on because you just can't get past it, the things that have caused your heart to ache, this is a natural part of living life in this sin-warped world. And Jesus was not telling his disciples, following me will protect you from this. He told them rather, in this world you will have trouble. But, 
he did not stop on that very encouraging note. He continued, but take heart. And I love, I love that, take heart, because it means have courage or do not lose heart. Don't give up hope. And this is the same thing he said to the disciples when they were crossing through the Sea of Galilee and, and the, the wind and the waves are crashing over the boat and he comes walking out to them and they're scared because they think he's a ghost. And he says, take heart. Don't be afraid. Don't lose heart. It's me. It's the same thing that later on in the book of Acts when Paul has been arrested and, and he is awaiting a trial before a Roman jury and he's got a, a slew of Jewish picketers who are basically lined up around his prison demanding he be killed because he just won't shut up about this Jesus. And in the midst of his jail cell, the spirit of Jesus comes and says, take heart, do not lose hope. I like that. I like he tells us not to lose heart, but why? Why shouldn't we lose heart? In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. Now, let me, let me be real clear here. Notice what he does not say. He does not say, take heart, for you can overcome the world. He does not say, take heart, for I've overcome the world, and so, so can you. That would be like a golf professional teeing off and getting it on the green and saying, hey, be encouraged. If I can do it, you can do it too. It'd be like Einstein saying, hey, don't worry about it. If I can figure it out, you can too. All of us know, yeah, that's a, that, that sounds nice, but in reality, we know we're not you. And we know we're not Jesus. In fact, the more I follow him, the more I realize how much unlike him I am and how much my flesh rebels against wanting to submit. I see, the older I get, wisdom is not thinking, oh, I'm more and more like him. Wisdom is recognizing more and more that is not like him and then being willing to submit even those areas and to continue to follow even when I feel like, man, I've screwed up a lot. So it is not a declaration that you can take heart because you can overcome the world, or I've done it so you can too. If that were the case, this would not be a vote of confidence. It would be a vote of despair because we cannot possibly do this by our own strength. Jesus' words are encouraging to us in the face of the trials that we are walking through that feel like birth pains, that feel like contractions, and they're getting closer and closer together. Jesus' words are encouraging to us because of what he did on the cross, overcoming and ultimately reframing what it is we're walking through. The reason that labor is, is even worth doing is because it has a purpose. It's pain with a purpose. And the life that we lead and the pain that we endure, while awful, when we get to experience the culmination of the kingdom of God, when we get to experience it alongside 
family members who for most of their life were resistant to the gospel, but they saw your faithfulness even in the midst of the hard stuff. When we get to, to spend eternity worshiping God alongside neighbors who mocked us and wanted nothing to do with Jesus, but they watched your life. They watched your hope in the midst of really trying things, and they were more convicted by how you kept your head high through the hard stuff. That was more convicting than you just being really comfortable. Why doesn't God protect us? Why doesn't God shield us from discomfort? Because it's in the midst of the hard stuff that people get to see that our faith is true, that we get to see that our faith is true. It's in the midst of that hard stuff that our light shines brightest. So he doesn't promise to protect us from it. He promises to be with us in it, and he promises us that it will not get the last word. And so in a way, what Jesus is doing in chapter 16 is akin to spiritual Lamaze. Ladies, what is Lamaze class? What do they try to teach you in Lamaze class? Breathe, or something like that. I don't remember. I didn't have to do it. In spiritual Lamaze, the whole point of those classes is, one, the recognition that a painful trial is, is imminent. You can't escape it. Two, that you can get through it and that these simple exercises, this reframing of that time can help you get through it. And there's breathing exercises. There's also the training of a partner who will be next to you, doing it alongside of you so you're not doing it alone, to remind you in the moment of your greatest pain, you're not alone and let's do this together. And in the same way, Jesus is saying, hey guys, there's a painful trial and it's imminent, but I want to remind you that you're not alone in this. My spirit will be with you every step of the way like your spiritual midwife, there to remind you to breathe, there to remind you who you are, whose you are, and the purpose behind your pain, there to expose the brokenness of this world so that it's not just those who are already on the inside who will call Christ king when it's culminated, but it's those who are watching your life as well because I died for them as well. They matter just as much to the Father as you do. And I'm here to remind you that this pain that you're about to endure will not get the last word. I will. And that's the hope we have in the midst of this really painful season that feels like the contractions are coming one after the other. All right, last thing. Can we put that picture up there? This is the newest addition to Lighthouse Community Church. This is Marcello Papano. He was born on Monday. He is beautiful. And I can guarantee you that his mom and his dad, Catherine and Pablo, are not focused in this moment on the painful labor that Catherine had to walk through. They're focused on the fruit of that labor. They're focused on this beautiful life that God has entrusted to them. They may not be getting a lot of sleep right now. 
it, they, their entire world is changing, and they're still trying to figure out what that will look like. I mean, we're 13 years in. We're still trying to figure out what that will look like. But I can assure you that for them, their focus is not on the trial so much as the fruit, the purpose behind the pain. And in the same way, we are in the midst of a really painful season of life, and it can feel overwhelming. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. It can feel really, really discouraging right now. Many of us are probably pretty overwhelmed with the way that the life we expected doesn't really match the life that we're living. And it might be really easy to lose heart. It might be really easy to give up hope. But this morning, the invitation is simply to reframe what we're walking through and to recognize that in light of the kingdom of God being birthed into our reality in light of eternity, the hard stuff we're walking through, it will seem in the long run light and momentary. It doesn't feel like that now, and that is not to minimize our pain, but simply to put it into perspective. Yes, this sucks. Yes, it's hard. Yes, it hurts, but there's a purpose behind this pain. And so we're going to go into a time of worship. I, I remember that, that first song that we sang this morning when we first came in, Blessed Be Your Name, when the sun's shining down on me. It's easy to, to praise and, and, and glorify God when everything's going well, right? It's easy. But that song continues, and blessed be your name when I walk through the desert place, when the world is not all as it should be. Blessed be your name. And I remember the very first time I ever heard that song was at the memorial service for my first youth pastor, a guy named Brett Jansen, died younger than I am of a heart attack. And I remember being sideswiped by the words of that song because I realized that I am not called to keep my... I am not simply called to worship God when it's going well. We are called to worship God even in the midst of the storm and it's in the midst of the storm that we need to keep our eyes fixed on him more than ever. And when things are going well and when things are hard, he is there with us and we desperately need to remain connected to him. We desperately need to keep our eyes on him because if we take our eyes off of him, it is really easy for the wind and the waves to overwhelm us. So may we worship him regardless of where we're at in our life, whether it's going well or it's incredibly difficult right now. Let's worship him together. And I'm going to ask my elders and their wives to go to the back because I know that there are some of you who are probably carrying some really, really, really heavy things right now. And you want to trust God in them that they won't get the last word, but you also don't want to carry that alone. And so if you need prayer, if you just need to kind of bring that burden that you are carrying and share it with another so that they can hold you up in this, please, during this time of response, mosey on back and, and, and spend some time praying. But now let's go ahead and respond to a God who reframes the brokenness of this world because our pain does not get the last word.
Let's worship together. Your praise will ever be on my lips, ever be on my lips. Your praise will ever be on my lips, ever be on my lips. Your praise will ever be on my lips, ever be on my lips. Your praise will ever be on my lips, ever be on my lips. Every situation, help me keep my eyes on you and not the storm around me, not the famine, not the sickness. My praise will ever be on my lips. Your praise, your
declare that you reign, O oh God, in every season. We will not fear. We release all fear this morning. And we proclaim that you reign. You rule and reign. You reign. The weapon may be formed, but it won't prosper.
Amen. It is, there is something about praising God in the middle of the darkness. There's something about praising God when it feels like the world is off its axis. There's something about praising God even when our hearts are heavy. I find that although it seems like the most counterintuitive thing, when we praise our God in any situation, it just helps to to, to buoy our heart above our circumstances. When we fix our eyes on him, we cannot help but begin to, to rise above those things. And although it doesn't negate the fact that they're there and they hurt, begins to reframe our perspective and remind us that our pain has a purpose and that the brokenness of this world will not get the last word. And we get to now go and be ambassadors of that hope. That as we rub shoulders with people who, let's be real honest, are real discouraged and real overwhelmed and have seemed to lost a lot of hope or have been placing their hopes in things that have been shaken over these last couple of years, we get to be ambassadors of that hope, not so that they will find their hope in us. We can't save anybody, guys. I can't save anybody. Rather, we get to point them to the only one who can. We get to point them to the source of life and the source of light. And so as we prepare to leave this building, it's not that we are leaving church. The church is leaving the building. The light is leaving the light bulb. The salt is leaving the salt shaker. Now we get to go out into this world and radiate the hope that we've found into our homes, into our neighborhoods, into our schools and our workplaces. Let your light shine. That others, although they might ridicule you, they might want to write you off, they might not understand. Let your light shine so that they will one day come to call Christ Lord and we can spend eternity worshiping together. Speaking of which, guys, we're not done. We are going to continue to worship as we leave here in the way we interact with people, in the way that we interact with neighbors, particularly the hard ones, in the way that we go about the things that we do. Every single thing we do is an act of worship. Our giving is an act of worship. And so for some of you who call Lighthouse home, you might respond by giving in the boxes in the back or online for those of you uh, who are watching at home. But for those of you who are new here, that Lighthouse isn't your home, you're a visitor. I'm not asking you to give a penny. What I would ask of you is that you let us know that you were here so we know how to, how to, you know, so that we can come alongside of you. We can let you know how to get more involved, maybe get you plugged into a life group so you can actually start doing life with some others. If you have a prayer request, if you have something that you are carrying that's heavy, please just fill out one of these connection cards. They're in the seat backs in front of you. Let us know what you're carrying, or maybe it's a question that today stirred up, and for you it's unresolved. Let us know so that we can reach out to you and have a conversation. That's the joy of getting to be pastors. Jeff and I don't work half a day a week. Our joy is getting to walk alongside of you and be an encouragement to you as you continue to fix your eyes on Jesus and learn what it looks like to follow and be discipled by him. So let us know, or if you want to get baptized, or you have a, a theological question, let us know. And then I hope that you will join us on Friday.
from 7 to 8.30 as we worship God together in this place. And we have a, a night of unplugged worship and just getting to, to pray and seek his face together. That's going to be this Friday at 7 o'clock. I hope that you'll join us. Now, if you would, if you would, just, if you would just extend your hands with me. I want to pray a blessing over you. And so I want, I'm going to invite you, if you're willing, to kind of put your hands out as if you're receiving this blessing. Lighthouse Community Church, you are sons and daughters of God, not because you earned it, but because he created you in his image and he loves you even though you've screwed up. Even though you've stumbled, even though you've misunderstood him, even though you have strayed far away, he loves you more than you could ever possibly fathom. And he knows that what we walk into as we walk out these doors is a world at war. He knows that we are in the midst of a painful labor and it can feel overwhelming at times. But the pain you endure has a purpose. And you have a purpose. That you would be one who finds hope in the midst of this hopeless season. You would be one who radiates the hope that you have found so that others might find him as well. Lighthouse Community Church, you are loved and you are light. Now go and be the light. Let your light shine amongst men that although they accuse you of being weak-minded and using Jesus as a crutch, they will see the way you live and ultimately come to call Jesus Christ Lord and Savior. Now go be the church. Have a wonderful week, guys. Love you. Sing a little louder. Sing a little louder.